If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in it to 1 Peter. Toward the end of your Bibles, the end of your New Testaments, please turn to 1 Peter. And we'll read this morning as we continue in our regular exposition of this book. We'll read beginning in chapter 1, verse 22, through chapter 2, verse 3. First Peter chapter 1, please follow along as I begin reading in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Amen. Let's pray once more. Our Father, we pray that this consideration of your word would honor your word, that you would open our minds and our hearts and give us receptive hearts, eager wills, eager spirits to do what we find you call us to do in your word. We thank you for the Bible. We pray that you would speak to us through it this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We return to these verses. 1 Peter 1, 22 through chapter 2, verse 3, which we began to consider last week, we return to these verses this morning to consider one of the most foundational aspects of the Christian life, and that is the relationship of the Christian to the Bible. We say often here that we are Bible people, but what does that mean? What do we mean when we say that and celebrate that and commit ourselves to that? This sermon the exposition of this passage will hopefully go a long way in explaining what we mean when we say that. So there are three things we learn in these verses about the Christian's relationship to the Word of God, and as we go through these three things, I hope to highlight under each one implications or applications for our own Christian lives and our life together as a church. So consider with me these three truths we learn about the Christian's relationship to the Word of God. Number one, We'll see that Christians are born of the Word. Number two, that Christians long for the Word. And number three, that Christians grow through the Word. Consider with me first the truth that Christians are born of the Word. Please look again at the text beginning in verse 22, the second half of verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since or because you have been born again not of or through perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Very simply, this text teaches us the means by which God brings new life, new birth, transformation, conversion, regeneration, is through the living and abiding Word of God. The Word of God is the means of the new birth by which we have salvation, by which we have the forgiveness of sins. People are born again 
through hearing and believing the truth, and they are not born again any other way. And what Peter immediately emphasizes after he states this, he says, you know, you've been born again through the Word. He immediately begins to compare our first birth and the quality or lack thereof of our first birth and the quality and the power and the character of our new birth through the Word of God. He talks about how we are born again not of perishable seed. Now, all of us here, we've all been born of perishable seed, meaning a man and a woman came together, a baby was born, and we will all perish because we have been born of perishable seed. All of us will die. All of us will decay. All of us will perish. But Peter is jealous to show the Christians in Asia Minor that this new birth was not like the first birth. It wasn't of perishable seed. It was of imperishable seed, meaning Uh, that those who are born again of the Word of God, of the imperishable seed, will never perish. I mean, though they may physically die one day, they will live forever. They will have eternal life because the means by which they were born was this imperishable seed, the Word of God, the living and abiding Word of God. And that's the reason for the quotation then from Isaiah chapter 40, where we read that all flesh is like grass, Grass withers, right? It it falls away, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So those born of human seed, of perishable seed, they will one day perish. They're like the grass. We we rise, we have our life, and then we wither. We're like flowers that grow up, and then they die away after their season is over. But all those who are born again, what, what shapes the character and the quality of that new birth is the means by which they have been born again, which is the Word of God which never perishes, the Word of God which lives and abides forever, the Word of God which will never fade. Men and women, sinners, are born again through the living and abiding Word of God. Christians are born of the Word. The Word of God, the good news, comes to them in power, and they believe and they are born again. Now, what are some of the implications of this truth? We're born again through the means of the living and abiding Word of God. I want to highlight two implications for us. First of all, this passage and the truth conveyed in this passage should elevate our expectation for what God might be pleased to do through Word-centered gatherings. This passage should elevate our expectations for what God could be pleased to do through Word-centered gatherings. Word-centered gatherings, that is gatherings where the Word of God is read and preached and explained and opened up. Word-centered gatherings are the breeding ground for new birth. The Word is what God's Spirit uses to bring about regeneration and true heart change in people. The Word of God is what brings life. If there is to be a gathering and we know that the Word will be opened up there, then we have every reason to hope that new life will come. Doesn't mean it definitely will come, but we know the means by which God brings new life will be there, and therefore we should be expectant that God might be pleased to bring new life through His Word. So so this passage should cause all of us to elevate our expectations for sermons and for Bible studies and for small groups 
We should elevate our expectations for what God might be pleased to do when two businessmen sit down over lunch to look at a Bible passage together, or two students get together on the campus to look at a text of Scripture. This is how God purposes to work. People are born again through the Word of God. The Word of God comes to people, and it is His instrument to bring new life. And brothers and sisters, members here at Emmanuel, I would encourage us especially to think about this more in connection with our worship gatherings, and especially in connection with preaching. Peter tells these Christians, you were born again through the living and abiding word, and then he says in verse 25, this word is the good news that was preached to you. In other words, preaching became the means through which God brought about new birth. So I want to encourage all of us in light of this truth to elevate our hopes and elevate our expectations for what God might be pleased to do in an hour just like this. Let's pray every week and every Sunday, God, bring new birth through the preaching of the good news. This is your means, your instrument by which you bring new life. And if the word of God is going to be preached, then we hope and we ask, Father, that you would bring new life through the word of God preached. Bring true heart change and transformation from the word of God as it is read and preached today. Many of you will know the uh, British Baptist preacher of the 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was the most well-known preacher of that century. Some consider him the greatest preacher ever. And Charles Spurgeon would preach morning and evening to a congregation in his church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle of 6,000. That is 6,000 in the morning and 6,000 in the evening. And often there were different groups reflected in those particular services. And, and it was common, eventually Spurgeon's renown and his fame became so well known that people would come and they'd want to meet him and they'd want to tour the tabernacle. It became really one of the sights to see. And so they'd come to the Metropolitan Tabernacle and occasionally Spurgeon would give these private tours of the facilities. And Spurgeon was often asked, what is the secret uh, to your power in the pulpit? Why is it that you have been so used of God to impact so many thousands and thousands of people. And one of the things Spurgeon loved to do was to take those who were visiting on a Sunday morning to the basement of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and he'd open the door, and there you would see hundreds upon hundreds of Christians on their knees praying before the service started. Men and women would rise up early, they would get to the tabernacle early, and they would look to God and beseech Him to bring some sort of special blessing. They expected that God might do something because the Word of God's about to be preached. And they, there was this atmosphere, this enthusiasm, this eagerness. God, please come and do something as the Word of God is preached in this gathering. And Spurgeon would love to say, this is the secret to all my ministry. The people of God pray. And God was pleased to work mightily through that church and through the Word of God preached there Sunday by Sunday by Sunday, and it is still being blessed in that particular church. And even today, there are dozens upon dozens and even hundreds of Christians that gather early in the morning at the Metropolitan Tabernacle to ask God to come and bless His Word. May God be pleased to work that same grace in our hearts. A second implication of this truth that new birth comes through the Word of God and that is that we should not look to any other means of conversion other than the communication of the truth of God's Word. We should not look to any other means of conversion, new birth, regeneration, than the communication of the truth of God's Word. 
I hope, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for at least a little while, you're familiar with Romans chapter 10, incredibly important passage. Romans chapter 10, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says this, speaking of the gospel going to the nations and those who are without the gospel, how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching. Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now perhaps you've heard this quote. Uh, It's attributed often to St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel, use words if necessary. You heard that quote? Preach the gospel, use words if necessary. It's a very problematic quote for at least two reasons. Number one, we have no record of St. Francis ever saying it. Number two, it's a very stupid quote. No one can be saved or can be born again without hearing the gospel message. Faith comes by hearing, like words coming into the ear and being digested in the mind and sinking down into the heart and being owned by the power of God's Spirit so that men and women can come to believe. There is no salvation outside of the preaching of the gospel. And by that, I'm not limiting that to sermons where the gospel is preached. I'm talking about like Christians going out into the community among sinners and speaking the words, speaking the truth. By all means, live a godly example before the world. Perform good works that bring glory to our Father who is in heaven, but get to the words, because it's only by the words that men and women are born again. People will not be one to faith in Christ outside of the speaking, the preaching of the gospel. God uses His Word to bring about new birth, and we should not look for any other means outside of the Word to win people to true saving faith. Now, this has huge implications for us as a church in terms of our strategies for evangelism and outreach. Always remember, what you win people with is what you win them to. If you appeal to the flesh to win people, you will win people with and to the flesh. And we know from this passage, all flesh is like grass, it withers, it fades away. But if you seek to win people with the imperishable Word of God, and they do in fact believe, then they will truly last and truly live, like it'll stick, because they'll in truth be born again through that which is imperishable and that which abides forever. I have a quotation I want to read from a book called The Work of the Pastor by William Still. It's a book we'll be giving away at our pastor's conference in a couple weeks, the Feed My Sheep conference. So it's addressed to pastors, but it has relevance for Christians of all kinds as well. Pastor Still says this, it is to feed sheep on such truth that men are called to churches and congregations whatever they may think they are called to do. If you think that you are called to keep a largely worldly organization miscalled a church going with infinitesimal doses of innocuous sub-Christian drugs and stimulants, then the only help I can give you is to advise you to give up the hope of the ministry and go and be a street scavenger, a far healthier and more godly job, keeping the streets tidy than cluttering the church with a lot of worldly claptrap in the delusion that you are doing a job for God. 
The pastor is called to feed the sheep, even if the sheep do not want to be fed. He is certainly not to become an entertainer of goats. Let the goats entertain goats and let them do it out in goat land. You will certainly not turn goats into sheep by pandering to their goatishness. Do we really believe that the Word of God by His Spirit changes as well as maddens men? If we do, to be evangelists and pastors, feeders of sheep, we must be men and women of the Word of God. Brother, sister, do you believe that the Word of God is sufficient to do the work of God? Parents, you want your children to be born again at the heart level, not just to get excited about a music program. You want your kids to be regenerated supernaturally by the Spirit of God, not just to be enamored with a charismatic youth leader. Your lost brother, your mother-in-law who's outside of Christ, what do they need? They need to have such an encounter with the Word of God, with the good news, by the power of God, that God causes them to be born again of imperishable seed. And therefore, we will not use cheap methods to attract people. We're not out here to just try to get people to commit to the church so that we can have a church full of warm bodies with cold, dead souls that have tasted nothing of true regeneration by God's Spirit. We don't just want attenders who enjoy the song and dance, but have experienced nothing of actual supernatural power of new birth within their hearts. In our efforts to win people to Christ, we will endeavor to win them with the preaching of the Word of God because it is the Word and the Word alone that is the means by which the Spirit of God brings new life. And I want to call us, brothers and sisters, to commit ourselves to these things. Christians, first of all, are born of the Word. Secondly, we learn in this passage that Christians long for the Word. Look again at chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter, having spoken of new birth, of being born again, continues to utilize the concept and the language of, of birth to advance his argument. He now compares these Christians to newborn infants. Now, ordinarily in the Bible, uh, we're not encouraged to think of ourselves as infants. Passages may come to your mind where we're told not to be like infants. And, and you may know of passages as well, as well that tell us that we're not to be content with milk, but should graduate on to meat. And the passages, like in Paul and from the writer of the Hebrews, where they talk about these sorts of things, they should be understood in their own context, but they should not be read into this passage here. Okay, so Peter is not working with the same ideas the Apostle Paul is working with, the writer to the Hebrews. He has a very limited and narrow way in which he's calling us as Christians to act like newborn infants. He says we're to act like newborn infants in one respect primarily. As an infant craves milk and cries out for milk and can't go more than a few hours without getting some milk, so we as Christians, are to crave the pure spiritual milk, namely the Word of God. We are to have, as those who have been born again, 
been brought into life, we are to have this craving, this hunger for the Bible, that which nourishes our souls and produces our growth. And this truth comes to us in the form of a command. This passage commands us to want the Word, to crave it, to long for it. The word here for long entails earnest desire, like like your affections and your emotions and your energies are engaged in this kind of desire. As an infant feels it must have milk, so we as Christians feel we must have the Bible. Now, there are a couple of things we should appreciate here about this command. This verse comes to us as a command. We should appreciate that and see that. We're told to long, like you, Christian, long for the pure spiritual milk. So we should recognize, first of all, that it is legitimate for God to command our desires, for God to command our impulses at the heart level. God has a right to tell us to desire something, to crave something, to want something. Now, someone might respond, desires can't be commanded. I can't be told to have a desire that I don't have. You can't be told to want something, and I I can't come to want what I don't want. And the Bible's response is, of course you can. Christian, your desires and your cravings and your appetites can be changed and shaped and formed. The palate of the soul can expand and change. In a sense, that is the entire Christian life. Developing a palate that hates sin and loves God, that, that like tastes sin and spits it out, has a growing distaste for sin as we grow in grace, and that tastes the bread and the cup of the Lord that feeds on His Word and increasingly sees it as sweeter than honey and the honeycomb and finds it wholesome and satisfying. Your desires, Christian, can change, and if you are in Christ, they will change. By the way, side note, has really very little to do with the sermon, the world will teach you the opposite of this. You are your desires. We come into this world with native urges, native appetites, native cravings, native desires, and they define who you are, and they are fixed. Your, your nature, your intuitions, your appetites, they are who you are, and they cannot change. That is entirely false. That is entirely false. You can change, and you must change, and through the grace of God, you will change. And one of the things that's so wonderful about being a Christian is God God so works in us and renews us and washes us and changes us that 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 wicked thing which we used to love, we come to to hate over time and we come to, to, to dislike and to spit it out and to reject it. And as time goes on, we come to see the things of God as more sweet and more precious and we come to delight in Him more and more and find our satisfaction in Him more and more. That's the hope the gospel holds out for us, that we can change. My friend, you're outside of Christ, you're not a Christian, and you feel like these native urges that you have and these desires that you have, this is all I am, this is all I'll ever be, I got a message of hope for you. You can be born again, and you can change, and your desires can change. So here's a question, very practical question for Christians. If I find a holy desire in Scripture that I'm called to have, here's this desire 
long for the pure spiritual milk. I find a desire in Scripture that I'm to have, and I don't feel it in here. Like, I read that, and I'm just trying to be honest with myself. I don't feel that desire. That appetite, that craving isn't there like it needs to be, like I want it to be. Well, then what are you to do? You are a believer. You are born again. But, but, but certain things you know should be present in the heart of a Christian, things you should want and desire. You don't feel it burning as strongly. You don't feel it as, as powerfully as you wish and as you know it should be. What should you do? Well, you should do a couple of things. Number one, you should ask God to give you that desire. Whatever it is, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Long for the pure spiritual milk. Taste and see that the Lord is good. God, work that desire in me. Just ask God that. I, I don't feel this desire and this longing like I know I should. I want more of it. God, would you be pleased to work this within me? Y'all, we should be praying those kinds of prayers all the time, like all the time. I don't feel today like a Christian. I don't feel the way I know I should feel. I, I, I know I'm not thinking the way a Christian ought to think. Lord, work in me a desire for your word. I don't feel like going to church today, but Lord, I know I'm to, I'm to want to come with exuberance into the assembly. Work that within me, Lord. Stir that up within me. Go to God, first of all, and ask him, Lord, work this desire within me. But then, don't miss this. It's so important. Then, having asked God to give you the proper desires, pursue purpose to adopt the habits and disciplines and behaviors that nurture that desire and help to bring that desire into being. I want to want my Bible more. Pursue the habits and the attitudes and the disciplines and the behaviors that will accommodate and acculturate and, and create in me those desires. By way of illustration, my wife, about a year ago, um, told me, uh, she asked me, she implored me to develop more hobbies and interests. She just, just thought I was acting too much like an old man. And same two, three things every day, you know. You need to kind of get out there and do stuff and have some hobbies and interests. And so I tried to take it to heart and tried to develop some new hobbies and interests. I don't know why, but I decided I'm going to really try to get into soccer. I've never liked soccer. I've always kind of thought it's a girly sport, and I'm more of a football guy, like a capital F football guy, the real football, okay? I said, I'm going to get into soccer. I wanted to develop within my own heart, within my life, an interest and an enjoyment of soccer. Well, what did I do? Well, I identified three or four of the soccer guys in the church, and we started a group chat and started talking about soccer, and I started looking at articles on soccer, and I started watching a game or two here or there, and I started researching more of the players and their stories and things like that. And you know what? It didn't happen right away, but after a few months, I began to really enjoy soccer. I didn't when I started, but by pursuing certain habits and behaviors and attitudes and friends, I came to like it more. It's not really rocket science. You want God's Word more? Well, what sort of habits 
and behaviors and attitudes and people can you pursue that will help bring that desire into being under the blessing of God? I'm not saying this is mechanical, like it's just a matter of inputs and outputs, but go ahead and pursue the means by which God says He's pleased to work that grace within you. So read your Bible. Study your Bible. Listen to sermons that explain the Bible. Get together with fellow Christians who you know treasure and love the Word and talk to them about the Word of God with them. Pray with them about your relationship to the Word of God. Come to the gathering of God's people where the Word of God is going to be central and it's going to be opened up and expounded and sung and read and recited. Come to the small group where a community of people will together discuss the Bible and and talk about the Bible and try to apply the Bible. Pursue the habits and the behaviors and put in the time and the energy to pursue those things that God is so often pleased to use to bring about new desires within us. Well, however you do it, we must recognize this. God calls me to this. This is not a suggestion. This is a matter of imperative, of command. You, Christian, long for the pure spiritual milk. And so if I'm a child of God, this is not optional to me. I have to love the Bible. I gotta pursue the Bible, I gotta purpose. I'm gonna want the Bible, long for the Bible, crave the Bible. But having observed that Peter commands this desire, it's important that we observe also what Peter says at the end of verse three. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words, he's saying, as I'm telling you to long for the pure spiritual milk, to long for the living and abiding word, I don't assume I'm telling you to do something you don't want to do. Like, I'm assuming this is a pleasant command. Like, you've tasted something of God's Word, and you love it. You know it's good. It's tasted sweet on your tongue before. Long for that thing which is good. Want that thing that you know in your heart and have experienced in your life and have tasted with the tongue of your heart. Long for that thing which you know to be good. If you've already tasted that the Lord is good, I'm preaching to the choir on this. You know the Word of God is precious. You know it is sweet. Therefore, pursue it. Long for it. Treasure it. If I told you to long for your spouse, or to long for a peaceful home, or to long for time away with your family, or to long for the Lord's Day when we gather together, what am I saying? I'm telling you to long for that which you know is good, and that which you have come to already enjoy. That's how Peter's communicating to these Christians. This is a pleasant command. I'm telling you to long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, But of course, you have already tasted that the Lord is good, haven't you? And so pursue that which you know is right, which you know is sweet, which you know is precious. Okay, a few implications for us before going on to our third and final point. Christians are born of the word. Christians long for the word. What are some implications to this truth taught to us in this passage? Three of them. Number one, most fundamentally, a hunger for the word should manifest itself in daily Bible intake. What does it look like to long for the Word? What is a Christian who is desiring and craving the Bible, what should that look like? Number one, most fundamentally, a hunger for the Word of God should manifest itself in daily Bible intake. Just a good diagnostic question. 
If, if, if someone viewed your life, evaluated your schedule, evaluated your devotional life, what would they conclude about your interest in the Bible, your relationship with the Bible? Now, now some of us may feel convicted by that question. Brothers, sisters, just do what Christians do. Go to God and repent and ask for His forgiveness and by His grace purpose to do better. But what about our days? What about our time communicates? We long for the pure spiritual milk. We long for the living and abiding Word of God. In my mind, at the very least, this would entail regular, daily Bible intake. A second implication. A hunger for the Word of God should manifest itself in a prizing of opportunities for instruction in the Bible. A hunger for the Word of God should manifest itself. It should look like a prizing of opportunities for instruction in the Bible. How do you think about, how do you talk about the regular gathering for worship? You're filled with zeal and expectation. The Word of God is there. The pure spiritual milk is there. And I'm hungry for it, and I want it, and I crave it, and so I'm coming for it. Parents, how do you talk to your kids about worship gatherings and Word-centered gatherings? Does the small group or the equipped class or the Sunday school seem like a chore to you? Or is it a delight to gather with other brothers and sisters to consider the Word of God? A hunger for the Word of God should manifest itself in a prizing of opportunities for instruction in the Bible. And then third and final implication under this second point. A hunger for the Word of God should manifest itself in a responsiveness to the truth. A hunger for the Word of God should manifest itself in a responsiveness to the truth. I am eager to know what my God has revealed. I am eager to search out His will, and I am eager to live in light of it. Like, just, just tell me what the Word says. That's what I want, that's what I need, and that's what I'm going to live out, God being my helper. It looks like a responsiveness to the Word of God. All right, the third and final truth about the Christian's relationship to the Word. Christians are born of the Word. Christians long for the Word. Thirdly and finally, Christians grow through the Word. Christians grow through the Word. They are brought into being through the Word, and they grow as part of their diet through the Word of God. He says, long for the milk, verse 2, why? that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, for the sake of time, I won't say as much about that preposition there, into salvation. The very simple thing to say is that, as Peter has been teaching us, there is a sense in which we are already saved and a sense in which we await final salvation. Verse 10 of chapter 1 talks about the grace of God that is ours, and verse 13 talks about the grace that will be revealed at the last day. Like, we're we're saved and we're kept and we're safe in Christ, and in some sense we're looking forward, we're reaching toward, we're trying to obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. That's the way Peter is using the language here. We grow up into salvation, meaning we grow toward our salvation. We grow in maturity. We grow toward the stature that God calls us to. However, setting aside that prepositional phrase at the end of the verse, the larger point is that Christians are to grow. Growth is normal and natural in the Christian life, and they are to grow principally through the Word of God, or to long for the pure spiritual milk so that 
by it we may grow. Like as newborn infants grow through taking in milk, so Christians grow through taking in and digesting the Word of God and getting all the wholesome nutrients out of the Bible that help us to grow strong and healthy as believers, which means the Word of God is the means by which Christians grow. Tasting and enjoying God through the Word is the means by which we grow in our salvation. Now, what are some implications of this truth? I have four, and then we'll be done and transition to our time of communion. Number one, growth in the Christian life is not optional but essential. Growth in the Christian life is not optional but essential. Peter assumes we're to be growing. Growth in the Christian life is not exceptional but ordinary and natural in the lives of Christians. Just as you would think there's something wrong with a baby that never grows, so we should conclude there's something fundamentally wrong with a Christian who never grows. Christian growth is meant to be organic and it's to be progressive and it is sustained and indeed generated through the Word of God daily transforming our lives and our hearts. Growth in the Christian life is not optional but essential. Number two, you should not expect growth in your walk with Christ apart from regular Bible intake. Let me say that again. That's so foundational. This is, this is like in the syllabus of the Christianity 101 class. You should not expect growth in your walk with Christ apart from regular Bible intake. Christian, you should have no hope of growth in the faith if you are not taking in the Bible regularly. It's no coincidence that the strongest Christians, indeed the happiest Christians, are those who are abiding in the Word of God. It's just so often true. Those who are most mature, most stable, most happy in God are those who are abiding in the Bible, taking the Bible in regularly, daily. Someone comes to me and says they're not doing well spiritually. One of my first questions is going to be, have you been in God's Word regularly? Like, are you abiding in the Word of the Lord are you taking in the pure spiritual milk? Now, that's not just a pat response or a self-righteous gotcha kind of question. It highlights a fundamental truth about how the Christian life works. We don't grow in sanctification apart from a deep and abiding connection to the Word of God. Therefore, we should not expect growth in our Christian lives apart from regularly taking in the Bible. Third implication of this truth Spiritual growth is not primarily mystical, but rational. Christian growth is not primarily mystical, but rational. Let me explain what I mean by that. Christian growth is rational in the sense that it is informed and sustained by truth, by the Word of God. God sanctifies us, changes us by truth coming through the ear or the eyes, and coming into the mind. It is not God's purpose, it is not His will, it is not His way to sanctify us through mystical experiences or vague ethereal occurrences divorced from the truth. We grow primarily through the truth entering into our minds and shaping our lives. Now, this is important to remember. 
whenever there is a major breakthrough in sanctification, it will always come through some greater apprehension of the truth. You will not have spiritual breakthroughs. You will not have success in fighting your sin. You will not become more like the Lord Jesus, divorced from, apart from, some greater apprehension or understanding of the truth that takes root in the heart. This is God's way of changing us. This is God's way of sanctifying us. The truth of God's Word comes to us. Remember Peter's great confession, Lord, you alone have the words, you have the words of eternal life. We go to the words, we go to the truths, and it's through the truth of God's Word that we are changed. What did Jesus pray in His high priestly prayer in John 17? Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. And therefore, if we want to grow, the primary means by which we do that is not to work ourselves up into some sort of mystical frenzy or something, or to try to have some vague experience with God. It is to fix our minds and our hearts on the truth revealed in God's Word because it is by the truth. It's through taking in the pure spiritual milk that we grow up into salvation. A fourth and final implication. Because Christians grow through the Word, we should prize Bible instruction because by it we grow. I say this often, what what do Christians need? Two of the most important things Christians need are time blocked out every day to study the Bible, and they need lots and lots of good sermons over a lifetime. We should prize instruction in the Bible because it is by the Bible, by God's Word, by the truth that we grow. Brother, sister, don't let anyone tell you that your appetite for faithful Bible preaching and teaching is somehow evidence of selfishness or is somehow evidence of pride or something like that. If it is genuine hunger for the Bible by which you hope to grow, it is a sanctified and godly desire. This passage commends that desire. Now, I'm not talking about, I'm aware there's a sort of, sort of sermon tasting that people do. They have this hyper-refined palate, and they like to listen to some of this preacher and this preacher. They always have to have the best preaching, and they're picking from preachers like they're hors d'oeuvres on a menu. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. But a genuine hunger for Bible teaching and Bible reading and Bible study should only be encouraged because it is by such attention to the Bible that God is pleased to grow us in the truth and in our salvation. I've heard this from Christians. And they're asking their pastors or the small group leader or somebody, you know, can we, can we get more Bible? Can we, can we get more teaching in this area or that area? And sometimes Christian leaders will act like that's somehow prideful or selfish. You know, you should really just serve. You should really not be worrying about that, you know, and we don't really go beyond these basic fundamental things. That's not a Christian attitude. We should long for the Word, long for the truth. And if we find in ourselves a God-given and God-blessed appetite for truth, that is only a good and godly thing that should be nurtured and treasured and cherished. Do you want to grow as a Christian? Brother, sister, prize the Bible. Eagerly pursue opportunities to grow in your knowledge of the truth because it is only through the Word through taking in the pure spiritual milk that we will grow up into salvation. I'll close with this. What is true of Christians? 
What is true of Bible people? These three things, they are born of the Word, they long for the Word, and they grow through the Word. These things are true of them because at one point the Word of God came to them. The good news was preached to them and it was owned by the power of God's Spirit and it transformed them and caused them to be born again. That's the only thing that has created this kind of relationship to the Bible. If you're not a Christian, you don't need anything else. You need the gospel. You need the words. Don't wait for anything else. You don't need to achieve some standard of maturity. You don't need to perform a regiment of good works or something like that. You don't need to wait till you have all your questions answered. All you need is the Word of God. And it is the Word of God by which we are saved. Now, I want to press in at this point. There are some of us who have been coming here for months and months and months and months and even years. And you're not a Christian. You have the good news. You have the Word of God preached to you week by week by week. What will you do with it? Will you receive the good news in Jesus? The Word as it's been proclaimed and preached to you. You don't need anything else. Don't look to anything else. There is no other means by which God brings new life. So here, my friend, you have it for you. The Word of God preached, the good news that God is pleased to save sinners through what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. You will have it illustrated for you, displayed before you through the sacrament here in a few moments. And for all those who trust Jesus Christ for the atonement He made on the cross through His broken body and His shed blood, they will be saved. And this offer is for all. God is pleased to give new life, and you, my friend, will change. You can change if the Word of God comes to you, and you embrace it and believe. The Lord will be pleased to transform you, to regenerate you, to cause you to be born again at the heart level. Don't you want to experience that? Don't you want to see your appetites for sin changed? Don't you want to see your heart and your life changed? Don't you want something about your sin problem to find resolution in something outside of yourself? It comes only through what God has done in His Son, Jesus Christ. We call this the Word of God, the good news. And this day it is preached to you. Let's pray together. Our Father, the Word of God is here. The Word of God, for many of us in this room, is in our hands. It's on our devices. It's been proclaimed in this service and in this sermon. It will be displayed in the Lord's Supper here in a few moments. God, please come and bless your word. Please come and own your word to the bringing of new life and to the transforming of our hearts. Please come. Don't let your word return void. Please work through it in the lives of your people and in the lives of those who are outside of Christ, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.